0: Great good morning we're thinking about coveting, and um, we talked about it last week we 'll review a little bit and and make a few more points about it it 's one of those terms that has kind of been had things lost in translation it 's what it meant in the beginning and what it means now it tends to vary a little bit so we 're going to try to clarify that and 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 try to apply it to our life to covet is to Um, delight in something, that's literally what it means. And it can be negative or positive depending on what is being delighted in. It's not just a negative word. It depends on the context. Delighting in something belonging to another person violates both the ninth and the 10th commandments. Um, It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And in kind of bullet pointing these, it ended up having the wife being pulled out, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's traditionally what the ninth commandment is, and don't covet your neighbor's goods. But in the initial one, it was kind of thrown together. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, either his property or the individuals that he has. Um, When we take delight, in our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's life, we cross the line of the ninth and 10th commandment. We don't have to commit adultery with our neighbor's wife. We just have to want to, or husband. We don't have to steal to cross the line because of the ninth and 10th commandment. We just have to really want to. We don't have to murder to cross the line. We just have to be angry. And with that sense, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can, people have kind of divided up the 10 commandments uh, the first four seem to be more God-oriented and vertical. The second six tend to be more horizontal and people-oriented. I think we could make a strong case, though, that the first eight commandments and the last two commandments are very different. The first eight have to do with actions. The last two have to do with thoughts or attitudes, things that can't be seen. The first eight, you can accuse somebody of doing. You could see somebody stealing, committing adultery, and that's the way it worked in Judaism. You had to have a couple witnesses that verified that somebody did something, and if, and if you had a couple witnesses, they were indicted, but how can you indict somebody on what they're thinking? You really can't do that. So the only way somebody would then be accused of coveting if they accuse themselves It's one of these flags that we drop on ourselves. Perhaps this is why as time passed, coveting became dismissed it was the action sins the things you could see people do those carry the day the behaviors and the thoughts and the attitudes that underlie that they tended to kind of be dismissed it was jesus who ended up um dusting off the commandments and putting commandment nine and ten back on the board said you've heard that it was said to the people long ago do not murder anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as we mentioned last week, and just by way of review, coveting is the gateway sin. And if you think of it, the reason we do the things we do is because we think the things we think. Would you agree? Actions begin with desires. And so coveting then, wanting, that's the gateway sin in dealing with sin. And if we want to be thorough in doing so, we've really got to figure out how to deal with coveting. How do you deal with something that isn't really outside? It's inside. How can you deal with something that isn't based in what you do, but based in what you think? How do you? How do we? How do we manage thoughts and feelings? That's what we end up having to do when we when we come to coveting. Um, we don't focus our attention on this sin. Growing up, you know, I was I grew up in a, in, a, in a church that you told your sins to other people. I can't remember a time that I ended up telling the I coveted. I don't think I ever did. You know, I talk about disobey my parents or get angry or did that so I don't think I ever once uh, confessed the sin of coveting. It just didn't matter as much. For Paul it did matter. Whatever the reason, Paul he took devotion so seriously that coveting really mattered to him and he found it to be and i'm using the word carefully he found it to be uncontrollable which is interesting in light of the the weight put on the need to obey the commandments Um, paul says in romans 7 i would not have known what sin was except through the law for I would have not would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had not said, "Do not covet." But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. But far from the law, sin is dead. The sin that tripped Paul up in Romans eight—it's coveting. That's what he talks about. That's the sin that he could not control. In fact, I think what we. I think I wrote this down and I think it's an accurate description of what he's saying in Romans 7 and 8. The part of Paul that wanted to honor God by not coveting. Again, he took it seriously. There was a part of Paul that he really wanted to be okay with what he had and did. He didn't want to have to desire different Experiences, different thoughts, etc. The part that wanted to honor God by not coveting was overwhelmed by the part that couldn't ignore what others had and did. He found it to be uncontrollable. And the difference between you and I hear that, we, well, of course, you know, you can't control your thoughts, and that makes sense to us, and it is true. But for him, He knew that that, I'm violating the ninth and 10th commandment, and he cared about it. And what he found is the more he tried to control it, the more uncontrollable it became. Paul was taught something that we might not have heard using the same words. I think, though, that if we think of growing up and having individuals talk about well these are the things we should do and these are the things we shouldn't do i think if we've been to church we end up learning there's things that we should do right and there's things that we shouldn't do and then in Being able to follow through with that, maybe we've heard a version of it. There's a lot of different versions out there. So how do you do that? Well, sometimes you can compare it with, you know, there's a good dog on this shoulder and a bad dog on this shoulder. And so if you want to do good dog things, you feed the good dog, and you starve the bad dog. And we hear that, and you know, by the way, which is a funny thing, so you feed the good dog, you starve the bad dog. What happens with that? So you feed the good dog, it becomes stronger. (laughs) My experience is. You know what ends up happening though? The the bad dog gets so hungry he he trapes across your 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 shoulder blades and eats the good dog. That's what that's what ends up happening. Um, But you know, you know what I mean? But we hear versions of that. So you focus on doing the things that you should do. Study the Bible and pray. Good things go to church, give it church, serve at church. And we've heard, and it's maybe true in some ways, if you do that, you end up strengthening the good desires and starving the bad ones. That makes sense. That was Judaism. That's, if you want to put your finger on the central tenet of Judaism, this is it there is an evil inclination and there's a good inclination and it's in everyone is the the evil inclination the yetzer hara then there's the good inclination the yetzer hatov yetzer hara yetzer hatov what you do in order to kind of strengthen the good inclination and decrease the evil inclination, what Paul would have heard, the more you study the Bible, the more you study the Torah, the first five books, the more you'll strengthen the good inclination and starve the evil inclination. Paul would have heard that until he was, when he was this big and on and on. And I think we've heard things like this. This is not just Judaism, is it? We hear similar things. Um, What Paul ends up saying is that using self-will to control coveting doesn't work Doesn't work It would have been shocking because what Paul says the very things that he was taught would control coveting Actually made it worse if you put law as a corset to try to control coveting. You can control behaviors with law. You cannot control thoughts and feelings with law. It doesn't end up decreasing them, it ends up increasing, I think that's what Paul says. And just so you know, if Paul writes something like this in Romans, it must have been shocking at the time. The virtual equivalent, imagine, if we would have heard from the CDC That, you know, Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson, you know, those vaccines, they really don't decrease immunity. They increase our susceptibility to the disease. I'm sorry to say it. The thing you've been relying on to control COVID is actually producing it. Imagine what we would feel if if we learned that. This is the virtual equivalent of that. Paul saying the very thing that they were taught would control the evil inclination. Paul says, I got bad news. It doesn't control evil inclination. It actually strengthens it. This is the challenge, by the way. When you, when you think of, you know what we need to do, really? We need to get tough with sin. Really. We need to start Mickey Mousing around. Let's call sin. Sin get off of it. Stop doing what you shouldn't do. Do what you should do. You know, if we take that approach, you know, you can control some things with that. You know what you can't control with that? Your thoughts. And you know what God measures and monitors? Not just your actions. God monitors our thoughts. And um, yeah, That's the challenge with a get tough with sin approach. The more you try to stamp out coveting, the worse it becomes. Um, Judgment doesn't work to control coveting. Judgment doesn't work to control coveting. Calling a thought or feeling bad and thinking that you're gonna erase it, you've just given it energy pills. It ends up long-term creating the very things you're trying to stamp out. Now, it might not do it tomorrow, but down the road, it will. that's what, that's what we find here. So judgment doesn't control coveting. So what do we do? What does control it? Interesting, James, Jesus' half-brother, provides some insight. Um, he ends up saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires the battle within you? See, in this verse, we look at it a lot. Interesting verse. Again, James is Jesus' half brother, same mother, different father. Yeah. You get that? Good. And some of you are saying, "No, I don't, Mike." Anyway, anyway. Okay. you want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Do you think Scripture says without reason? The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Well, you know what Paul is dealing with. I'm James. Excuse me. James is dealing with. There's a problem. And the problem isn't immorality now there might be going on but that's not the problem james is concerned about you know what james is concerned about fighting between jewish house churches jewish christians who were went into the roman empire and one church is House church is comparing itself with another house church and they're trying to say, you know, this house church over there, you know, that guy's, that guy's full of it. You know, can we talk? And so that's what's happening. The churches are dividing. In the Bible, Paul was really concerned that the church split into threes in Corinth. One says, I'm Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. The church split into threes, and Paul was outraged. We've talked about this before. You know, and we can't really dial the clock back. Can, but can we realize we're in a very different place? Wikipedia, again, I'm not sure how accurate it is. I, did, I typed it in once. How many Christian denominations? And I've told you this before. What they said, again, I, I'm, 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 if it says it, I'm not... But it's still... is 41,000. So, what that means, Paul was concerned about the church splitting into threes. We are 14,000 times more divided than then. You know what that means? For every six months since the church began, there's been a split. Every six months for 2,000 years. What James is doing, he's looking at that, the splitting, and he's saying, that's a problem that's a problem because what is supposed to happen christianity is supposed to bring us together and would you agree the political landscape the medical landscape when you put pressure on things, the true nature and the pressure brought by these things, it really has a splitting influence, doesn't it? Churches are dividing over these questions. Again, I'm not pointing a big bony finger. And I I all I'm saying is it's one thing to control actions. It's another thing to control thoughts. Huh? James though, he talks about the issue He's dealing with contentious Christians. This is what, this is the problem James is dealing with. Not Christians who are being immoral necessarily, but they're dividing and hostile and fighting with each other. And um, he ends up pointing out a few things. He talks about there's craving. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. Coveting is just wanting something. And so here's what's happening. In this place, They really want what they want. I want this, I want that, I don't want this, I don't want that. She has that, he has that, I don't have that, and this. And that's where it starts craving. I want it. And what ends up happening when we want to have something we cannot have, and when we want to do something we cannot do, well, let me ask you if you want to have something that, and you're prevented from having it, You want to do something, you're prevented from doing it. What does it do with you? I tell you, as it does with me, I want it all the more. That's what happens, craving. That's number one. And that leads to contempt. Contempt, when it says, do you think scripture says without reason, the spirit he causes to live in us envies intensely. Let me tell you what that's saying. That we are hardwired when we don't get what we want to blame somebody. I'm not saying we should be this way or shouldn't be this way. I'm just saying what the Bible indicates, the spirit he caused to live in us is going to create that reaction. So if you wonder, why do I get so angry when I don't have what I want? And what it says here, the spirit he caused to live in us assigns blame. We naturally and instinctively are going to blame someone when we have frustrated desires. And who's at fault? Well, I might be at fault. Of course I don't have what I want. I'm too weak, or I'm, I'm not worthy to have things I want. Some of us, it's not ourselves who's the problem. It's the person sitting next to me. Well, of course I don't have what I want. I mean, look who I'm living with. You know, so we, I, I, I didn't really, I didn't look at anyone there. I tried to purposefully let my eyes go fuzzy so that you weren't thinking, I think he looked right at us, and I think he was thinking, about <laughs> craving and contempt. And that's, it's kind of in the DNA. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. Craving and contempt. So James is a- answering the question, what causes fights and quarrels among us? Craving. We really want it, contempt, I should have it, conflict, craving, contempt, conflict, Crave. It's like a whirlpool. Craving, contempt, conflict, craving. And, and the deeper it goes, the more it spins, the more difficult it is to get out. That's just, James is saying, you know what causes fights and quarrels? You know what causes fights this way? What's inside the covetous desires that well up. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? How can we manage this whirlpool? He ends up saying this, craving, contempt and conflict. And here's the verse, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Briefly, as we look at the end of this, you know what we gotta do? We gotta define two things. Grace and humility. God gives grace to the humble. So, if we want to be in a position where we're able to experience the grace that allows us to deal with coveting, we gotta get humble first because he gives grace to the humble. Are you humble? You say, well, I don't know, Mike. Let's make sure we understand what humility is and is not. Humility is not being self-effacing. It's not being oh it, I'm sorry, it wasn't me at all. I know the glasses are wonderful, but you can get up here too. And it really was nothing about me. you know that's, you know, kind of being self-deprecating. That's not humility biblically. Uh, um, who are the humble? It says, "He humbled you, causing you to hunger. And feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you. The man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So, you know what a person who's humbled is? A person who's been exposed to having things they don't want. Not having things they do want. Doing things they don't want to do and not doing things they do want to do. Feeling things they don't want to feel not feeling things they do want to feel, if you are humbled, we are humbled by Him, and what that humbling process looks like, you're going to be put in circumstances, you're not going to have what you want to have, you're not going to do what you want to do, and you're not going to feel what you want to feel. And what the knee-jerk reaction will be is, why? Until it keeps happening. and keeps happening. And over time, in fact, you know what I'm describing, The wilderness—that's what it was. The the cloud would move into a place where there wasn't water, or move to a place where there wasn't food. Or, time and time again, I don't control when I go from here to there, and and so over the process of time, what he's doing—he's humbling them. And there was there was a three-part thing here. Talks about hunger. That's where it begins. Hunger. You know what hunger is? Being without something that you can't ignore. What are you hungry for? I'm fine, Mike. I'm not hungry for anything. That's a lie. It's not true. We all want something we don't have. What are you hungry for? Acknowledgement? Success? You say, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't want that. That's the problem, isn't it? Do you understand what I just did? I feel a feeling. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it go away. That really works, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that really work? You take a feel, oh, come on! I'm glad somebody's saying, no, it doesn't. You're exactly right. You try to force that thing down, and what ends up happening? It's like loading a musket. And at some point, if you're lucky, it comes out this way. A lot of times it comes out sideways and we don't even realize why we're reacting as we're reacting. We we end up I shouldn't feel this says who. What ends up happening we end up labeling things. And when you label it you judge it. And when you judge it you put law on top of it. And when you put law on top of a thought or feeling what happens? <laughs> don't do that. You know what he wants us to do? Look at what you think and feel. Don't throw a penalty flag at it. Don't throw it in a good or bad box right away. Just name it. You know, God, I'm not in a place where I really like what I'm doing. I don't like how I'm feeling. I don't like what I'm doing. Do I need to say I'm sorry? You know what God would say? Finally, you're being honest about it. That's what humility is and hunger, humility. Humility is, I can't use what I have to get what I want. And you know what, interestingly enough, hunger, humility, hearing. You know what you'll end up doing? Tune him in. If you have everything you want, you're not going to tune him in, because you don't need to. But if you don't have everything you want, you're going to end up saying, what's up with this? What am I doing? And you know what God's going to say? Now we're talking, and that's the secret. To deal with humility, to deal with, I'm sorry, to deal with coveting? Don't put black and white on it, because what God wants to do, don't do that. What God says, talk to me about it. And that's it's interesting. How do the humble receive grace? Here's what he says in the wilderness. Here's what he wants to do in year one. It says, I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of Israel, year one in the wilderness. So then year two through 39, one experience of frustration after another. Why, what did he want them to learn? Look at the second verse he they were in the same place the same geographical locale they walked around in circles for 39 years came back to the same place where he had said in year one strike the rock and look what he says in year 39 take the staff you and your brother aaron gather the assembly together speak to the rock before their eyes do you know what god wants to teach you is to talk to him That's the end game. You learn to talk with God rather than, hold it, let me fix it. Don't fix it first. Don't correct it first. Connect with him. You know what God, the fact is, I think things I don't want to think. I do things I don't want to do. I have things I don't want to have, and I don't seem to be able to help it. And I'm not sure what to do about it. And God says, you know what he would say? You're talking to me about it. That's what you should do about it. Don't judge it. This is a relationship. I'm not a master and you're the slave. I'm a father and you're my daughter or son. And I need you to learn to talk to me. That's what he wants. He says, and how do we do that with him? Last verse, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. You know what sympathy means? Jesus understands what it's like to have unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. What Jesus would have you do is, I want you to think of the place where your desires are frustrated. Is it at home? And again, it might be at work, at school, with friends. You're in a place you don't have what you want to have. You don't do what you want to do. You don't feel what you want to feel. I want you to think of that place. And I want you to picture those people who you have issues with. You know what contempt is? It's kind of when you want something somebody else has, and the more you think about they have it and I don't, the more aggravated you become at them. You ever experienced that? You know, like Cain and Abel, when... God accepted Abel's, didn't accept Cain's, and Cain got to the place where he was so angry he ended up killing his brother. And Sometimes when we don't get what we want, it really festers in us. I want you to think about that place. And you're exposed to unwanted needs. Now, Jesus walks in. What is he going to do? I know what you're thinking, and stop it. You know what Jesus would say? He'd lock eyes with you. I really believe this. Lock eyes with you. I see your frustration. I know exactly how that feels. You're kidding. Yeah. The night before, I both wanted to die and I didn't. And Jesus learned to do what some of us have a hard time with. He says, Father, Take this cup from me, but thy will be done. Um, it says, let us approach the throne of grace. You know why Jesus sympathizes with you? This is the last point. You know why Jesus sympathizes with you? So you'll talk to the Father. My recommendation... Inhale Jesus' sympathy. Inhale it. In that room, he would lock eyes with you. I know exactly how you feel. Inhale his, ang- his anxiety. <laughs> no, don't. Don't inhale his anxiety. Inhale his sympathy. And exhale your concerns to the Father. Inhale his sympathy. You understand what it's like to be frustrated. Exhale your concerns. Jesus, I I, work's hard for me. School's hard for me. Home's hard for me. Give me strength. And what you'll find, it works much better on coveting than judgment does. Let me stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you for coming to the earth and being embodied so that we could know you sympathize with our weakness. You sent your Son to be embodied so that we could experience his sympathy. That's not nice. It's necessary. What we're dealing with is a deep infesting of desires that don't go away. And if we judge them and try to push them out of the way, it's not helping. It doesn't help. We end up just exploding in a different direction. And what we need is something we don't think we need. We need not to be judged. We need to be sympathized with. That's why you sent your son, so that we could experience sympathy. And so with sympathy, we can approach the throne of grace and speak freely with you. That's how we receive mercy. That's how we receive grace to help. We need grace. You give grace to the humble, and that comes as we approach the throne of grace because of the sympathy of the Son and speak freely with the Father. Little by little, would you teach us about that? In Jesus' name, amen.